0: Have a Bible. Get it open to Job chapter three. We're going to continue. We're in a series called "Out of the Whirlwind," uh, and we're we're talking about today, particularly the subject of lament. Lament is a fancy word for crying out to God or being uh, sad when you're going through times of suffering and learning how to do that in a God-honoring way. Um, we're not given an instruction manual at birth that tells us how to handle pain. I wish, I wish we did. I wish we were given a little, little manual or little kid-sized lessons as we're growing up about, hey, when something bad happens to you, uh, this is how you handle that. That this kind of thing could happen to you. And when it does, this is how God wants you to handle it. But we're not given that. And so I want to encourage you uh, with some words today. And if you weren't here last Sunday, I want to take you on a quick tour of where we were because we laid a lot of foundations last Sunday. And I just want to give you a very quick synopsis so that we're all on the same page. Uh, Last week we talked about how ultimately the problem of suffering in the world, all suffering ultimately goes back to God. That doesn't mean that God proactively causes everything that takes place, but it does mean that he's in control of the universe. So in the book of Job, when Satan goes to afflict Job with what he does, he he still needs God's permission to do it. Uh, You see that reflected again in the New Testament when, uh, you know, Jesus whatever Jesus says the demons have to do. That there's no point at which uh, either God just kind of sets the universe up and he backs away from it and says, hey, you're on your own until I come again. Uh, or does he go, hey, I'm going to, uh, you know, basically just spin the world like a, like a top and then step back and hope for the best. It's not that. Uh, that God remains intimately involved in the circumstances of life. That uh, when we go through things, uh, it's not that he can't do anything. There's not a moment where Satan can get out, arm wrestle God in what's going on. Uh, we talked about how what happens to Job in the book of Job is not because he sinned. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week when we talk about Job's friends. Uh, but it is, it is wrong to fall into one of two ditches. Either one is because somebody's going through suffering, they must have done something wrong. That's kind of the sin of Job's friends. And you see that picked up in the New Testament when the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his father? And Jesus goes, neither. So that's one ditch. The other ditch is to assume that we are never reaping what we've sown. Meaning uh, this could never be God proactively disciplining me for something that I did. Okay, both are found in the Bible. It could be either. Well, how do we know the difference? And the answer that Job gives us is we may not. And that's part of what's frustrating about the problem of pain in the world and why we still go around in in circles about this kind of a thing. Uh, Job is what I would call a requiem for what you might call retribution theology, which is a fancy way of saying kind of the idea that uh, Everything that goes on all suffering is punishment for something that we or somebody close to us may have done Okay, so third we talked about how we are often limited We will always be limited in our ability to perceive what's actually taking place So we talked about how Job and his friends are playing ball on on a very earthly level and they're all wrong about why what's happening is happening. And so you have what's, what's going on is far above them. You have uh, Satan and God and this kind of cosmic level of stuff that's going on, whereas they look at it as, okay, hey, Job, you obviously sinned and God's punishing you for that. That's why what's happening uh, is happening to you. We talked about the Noceums and the St. Bernards and the tent and all that kind of stuff, right? And how all that goes, and no, if you're not familiar with Job, there are no St. Bernards in the book of Job. That was an illustration we used. Alright, so just to review the story then, quickly. Job was blameless, he feared God, he turned away from evil, he was wealthy, he had a wife, he had ten kids, he had a bunch of animals. And in wave after wave after wave of tragedy, these are taken away from him. And at least for the first couple of rounds, Job does great. It's, naked I came into this world, naked I depart, blessed be the name of the Lord. Very instructive there because his orientation is whatever I actually have that I just lost was never mine to begin with. It was an act of grace to actually get it. Most of us just kind of view it through the lens of entitlement, right? My spouse, my stuff, my career, my this. Well, who gave you the career? Who gave you the spouse? Who gave you all of that? And rather than looking at it through that prism of, hey, what a blessing it was for me to have that time with them. That as an act of God's grace, we look at it as though God took it away from us, something we were entitled to. So Job passes the first couple of tests and he does all right. Until uh, Satan comes after his body. It's when he's still mourning the loss of all he owns, he loses his health. He's covered head to toe with boils that he uh, lunches still a ways off. Scrapes with broken pottery as he lies on top of an ash heap in disgrace and agony. His wife tells him, stop holding on to your integrity, curse God, and Die. Job's response, you're speaking foolishly. Shall we accept the good from God and not the bad? Another good question. So again, the Bible notes that Job doesn't sin in anything that he says. So at the end of chapter 2, Job's friends arrive to comfort him, and they find him unrecognizable physically. When they see him, they're cut to the heart. They tear their clothes. They cry out to God in his behalf. They sit on the ground with him for seven days, it says, not saying anything Him. So when chapter 3 opens, we're going to read Job's lament here. And uh, I want you to listen to the way that he talks. And after a certain length of time, God will weigh in and say, Hey, I got, is it okay if I say something now? But that's 35 chapters away. Okay? He lets them go on and on and on for 35 chapters. Job, his friends, kind of just continuing to pool their ignorance among themselves. But it starts with Job, and I want you to notice the difference between Job's lament and the way that his friends are going to lament next week. So we're going to start with the way you're supposed to do it, which is a little bit Jobian, like this. Here we go, Job 3, 1 to 7. If you're suffering or somebody else you know is suffering, here's a good way to, to, um, it's paradigmatic, if you will. And I want to talk to you about why this morning. It says, after this, Job opened his mouth, and he cursed the day of his birth. And he said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not see it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of months. Behold, Let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Now, I want you to think about how dark things got to be to get there, right? Don't celebrate my birthday, he's saying. You know, don't celebrate it. It's a terrible day. And really, the question he's about to ask is, if you were going to do this to me, or if this was going to happen to me, why would you give me life to begin with? So people who think the Bible is just for like these Pollyanna people that always things that go great for them all the time and and they just kind of smile and and write hallmark sentimentality to one another during times of suffering have never read Job. Uh, Job here is thinking in very, very powerful, painful terms. He looks at this point that some of you may have found yourself at. So suffocated by pain that you find yourself wishing you've never been born? Reminds me a little bit of George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life. Wish I'd never been born. But if Job had seen the movie, he'd probably go, yeah, well, you at least still have Peter, Tommy, and Zuzu. You still got a drafty old barn of a house and a wife who didn't tell you to curse God and die. I don't have any of that. And you're boil free. Okay, so he probably would look at George Bailey and say, you got a tough. Check this out, pal. And it is. It's a severe kind of plight. In verse 20. Job goes on. This is chapter 3, verses 20 to 26. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter and soul who long for death? But it comes not. And dig for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread. My groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. And he just goes on. This man's in pain, can you tell? He is in pain. In this section, he questions the point not of his suffering, but of his life. Suffering's gotten so bad, it's got such a strong hold on him. He wants to know. He says basically to God, I don't understand why my life matters at all if I'm going to be suffering this way. Why give me life at all? Now, as we mentioned last week, the Bible does teach that God punishes and and disciplines, but the kind of pain we feel the most deeply, which is what you see Job going through, is the kind where you feel like you don't deserve it. That's the stuff you don't get. I'm here to tell you as a pastor. I get to see things all the time that I find myself going... Boy, I don't get that one. I don't get that one at all. I remember once I preached a a funeral for a baby. They brought the coffin in. It was that big, like a shoebox. And I sat there and I watched the wailing, and I've done suicide funerals, lots of those. I've watched all sorts of tragedy hit that, let alone my own life, right? (laughs) Or I've had my share as well. So what do you do with it? Do, do, you, do you fall back on kind of the simplicity of atheism? And yeah, I said simplicity, which is, hey, we're suffering, so therefore there must not be a God. It's a very simple, easy way out. But the problem is that when you find yourself asking, okay, why did this happen? And you can never, well, if you can answer the why, then you have to answer the why of the why. You never get answer, okay, why did that happen? And why did that happen? And the further back you go, the you realize that you really found a pretty simplistic answer to things. It's that kind that we think, I mean, pain that we think we deserve, we're reaping what we've sown, it still stinks, but we get it. I get it. I did that. That was stupid. Now I'm going to reap the consequences of that. It's the other stuff, the stuff that you just don't understand. The kind of pain that we don't get is when we or somebody that we know doesn't deserve, at least in our eyes, doesn't deserve what it is that's coming their way. So we buy into the same mistake that Job's friends make sometimes. It's all happening to you because you've done something wrong. It's all happening to me because I've done something wrong. That's Job's struggle. It's not that he's suffering. He seems to handle that okay. He handles the first two rounds with great aplomb. I mean, a virtual master class in dealing with pain. Maintains his faith in God, but when the boils hit, when he's lost all of his kids and his property, well, then that's when things get to the point of unbearable for him. And so this raises some questions that I'd encourage you to think about this morning. See, the storm always exposes the foundation on which the house is built. So part of it is understanding that when your foundation is personal happiness, I exist in this life to make sure that myself... My kids, we have all the best opportunities, that we experience everything we can get out of this life, etc., etc., etc. When that's your actual foundation for your life, then when suffering hits and takes that away, you have no reason for living. Your reason's gone. But when it's something different than that, and this is one of the things that the Bible provides us in Christ, when your basis is actually something a little bit more purposeful, that you can take the other stuff away and you still have a reason to live. So Viktor Frankl, uh, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, it's a classic. uh, He writes, to live for happiness means that you're trying to get something out of life. But when suffering comes along, it takes the conditions for happiness away. And so suffering destroys all your reason to keep living. But to live for meaning, he calls meaning Christ in our case as Christians, means that you try not to get something out of life, but rather that life expects something from us. In other words, you have meaning only when there is something in life more important than your own personal freedom and happiness, something which you are glad to sacrifice your happiness for. Job 3 is a testament to the fact that the world is a tough neighborhood and it's the cry of a broken heart broken by the realities of the world that 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 the realities that kind of trickle out of the, the fall, Job's response to his immense suffering isn't atheism. It isn't to cease belief in God's existence or shake his fist at heaven, declaring, I'm not going to worship a God who allows those kinds of things to happen. Most of the people I know that are atheists, that's kind of the camp they're in. It's not that they actually don't believe in God, it's more like they actually kind of do, which is why they spend their time shaking their fist at him. You don't shake your fist at air. You do it to somebody you believe is there But you're just not sure he's good Or it's worship that, no way Job doesn't curse God He curses the results of the fall Job doesn't resort to that simplicity Of atheism or rebellion against God Instead his broken body and his heart Are poured into lament He moves not away from God He moves toward God if you're going to remember one thing I say today, remember that. See, that's how we handle conflict most of the time, right? When uh, you've got a problem with, with people at church, what do you do? You stay away from them. You got a problem with the church, what do you do? You leave. Got a problem in your marriage? I'm walking out. Got a problem with God? What do I do? Try to move away. Problem is, he's everywhere. (laughs) Hard to get away from him, right? It's Psalm 139. Where can I go from your presence? You can't get away from God. So people, instead of doing that, they isolate themselves. They take themselves out of the church. They stop going to their group. They stop going into the word because they're upset with God. And rather than making that painful move toward him, which is where the solace is found, they pull away, which is exactly where Satan wants us to go away from any possible source of strength, away from the place of faith, away from being able to actually acknowledge the sovereignty and, and uh, power of God in our brokenhearted prayers. Whatever you can do to keep, create distance between us and God. And so one of the most powerful things that we can do is simply decide I'm going to make the forward toward God move. So. Job goes, I mean, you can hear what he's saying. I mean, he's questioning, questioning, questioning. His heart's broken. It's oozing all over the altar of sacrifice in the presence of God. He's broken, and he takes it toward God. And that's what ends up down the road, I think, helping him come to terms with what he's going through. Lament has a very extensive, beautiful place among God's people. It's witnessed to throughout the Bible. Many of the Psalms, uh, which are, you know, hymns for worship, stuff they would sing in church. Our songs of lament. Jesus himself, he laments. He cries at the tomb of Lazarus over Jerusalem. And of course, most poignantly, he laments on the cross, quoting Psalm 22 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, our mourning doesn't displease God. It was Jesus who said, Blessed are those who mourn. It didn't scare God. He's not so fragile that us lamenting in his presence is going to hurt his feelings. But what we often do is create these environments where, where we think it's – and, and to be fair, church people sometimes, we encourage this. You know, we, we make it sound like it's faithless to cry out to God, like it's faithless to say, I don't understand this, I don't get it, I'm mad, I'm confused, I'm whatever, or to just simply lament and just be sad. We don't have a lot of good examples in our society of lament. We're great at knowing how to complain. Uh, we know how to be cynical. We know how to make other people feel sorry for us. And on the other side of the equation, we know how to pretend that everything is fine. And none of those are lament. Some Christians hear lament, they view it as something that demonstrates a lack of faith, but from a biblical perspective it's exactly the opposite. It's opening our hearts up fully before God, being completely vulnerable, transparent, and authentic in the presence of God. It's laying our heart bare in the presence of God. It's a place of complete and utter honesty. It's making ourselves vulnerable to God by trusting him with how we actually feel. And when we lament, we're trusting God. We're demonstrating our faith in His goodness. We're demonstrating a conviction that He cares enough about us to listen. That He's actually there. And He cares. And that in His power, if it be His will, He can answer them. You ever had a time where you just, you didn't even know what to say? Or what to pray? You ever had a heart so frozen by failure? I'll I'll, I'll tell you, there was a moment where I I, I was there, I was present when a a baby perished. And the family looks at me, says, would you lead us in prayer? What in the world do you say? And I was thankful, at least on that occasion, they didn't say, why did this happen? (laughs) And the longer I've been in ministry and the longer I've been in the faith, the more comfortable I am was simply saying, I don't know. Now that doesn't mean, that's not a, I don't know if God exists, I don't know. It's a, I don't know why it happened. What do I know? I know God's still there. I know God's in heaven. I know that he deserves uh, the tiebreaker of why did this happen, giving him time to Reveal it to me if he sees fit. And if he doesn't, that doesn't mean there was no point. It just means I don't understand what the point was. But my trust in God is going to win the day, and I'm going to make a decision to think nobly of God because God earned that by giving his son's life for me. His innocent son died on my behalf. And so, therefore... He gets the right in my eyes. He deserves the opportunity to be thought nobly of in many, many times. And in those times, I think the Bible teaches us some very vital lessons for walking with God through grief and offers us the example of Christ and those who've suffered more than most of us. Or suffered more than all of us, like our brother Job here. Most of us haven't had quite this level of especially in like one condensed time frame. There go all your possessions, there go all your children, there goes your health, there goes all that in one condensed little window. This is pretty unique. I found myself yesterday, you ever notice those people that, you know, they they got a, a bag of candy they smuggle into the movie theater and they don't know how to eat quietly, you know? They cut a little hole off the corner of the bag and instead of taking the bag, and those of you who are offenders, please listen, on behalf of America, listen to this. You take the bag and you pour it into your hand. And then you eat out of your hand. You know what you don't do? is try to jam your hand into a hole that's that big on a bag so that everybody, <laughs> on every stinking time you want one gummy bear or one Reese's peanut butter cup, jam your hand in there. I was sitting there yesterday, I was watching my, my daughter perform, and I've got, a, 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 I've got another one. I've got a kid sitting in front of me who's got his head all the way back to where his head's almost in my dad's lap. And he's got a bag, and he's crunching it to, to get the last bit of gummy bears or whatever out of his bag. And I'm sitting there, and I got, I got, I'm sitting there whining about this and going, I just can't believe it. What kind of show is this? You know, like, like, I mean, wouldn't you think that after weeks and weeks of practice, people would have a little more respect than this? And I go through this whole, like, rant, and I'm sitting there going, oh, my gosh. It's like, I'm whining about that. Like, like, that's the smallest thing in the universe, and how big of an impact it had on me. I'm just sitting there going, they colored the entire production. How could you let something like that color everything that you do? And I realized I am part of a society, too, that has gotten so prolific at feeling like a victim that we don't know how to play hurt anymore. And part of playing hurt is not pretending you're not hurt. It means, you, yeah, your leg's in a cast. And everybody can see your leg's in a cast. What's the matter with your leg? My leg's broken. But I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. Like, like those old soldiers in Revolutionary War movies. The drummer's got a headband on with blood going through it. He's missing five fingers on one hand. And he's got two on the other one. And they're still playing because they're still going to war. And meanwhile, I'm complaining about the gummy bear volume in the theater I'm in, Right? How do you expect me to possibly be able to go on? How can I possibly, you know, with that going on, right? And of course, I'm making fun of myself to make a point that even I, and and I'm a person, I feel like over the years I've gotten better at this, but I'm still not as good as I wish I were, of recognizing that part of what I'm going to do in this life is I need to get my pain threshold higher. I have to get, because you know why? Because if I can't even handle my own life, how am I going to handle your pain? I can't be there for you. If I'm so broken all the time that I can't ever, it's, a, it's supposed to be a condition, a time, a season, that from which God then enters and helps us heal and get better. It's not supposed to be an identity, a lifetime, a victimhood. It's about allowing then God to shine his light into that like he will for Job, and then him to metabolize that in a ways that you can bless others. Now, if you're here and you're broken, that time ain't here yet, okay? This might be lament time. This is the time where you're like Job, you're on the ash heap and you're doing whatever, but the point isn't to either desire to stay there because you like the attention you get from being on the ash heap, no, 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 no. Or to think that, or to curse God and ask to die, like Job's wife suggests he do, because you are on the ash heap. It's to simply be willing to say, look, this is a time where, look, my marriage split up. My, 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 my kids are in rebellion. My, I lost a child. I, whatever. And to go ahead and be sad in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. To go ahead and be sad. And cry. And mourn. And then... When the time is right, allow God day by day to bring healing to your life. And I've watched people, I know some of the stories of you in this room, breathtaking tragedy in your life. Breathtaking. I once preached in a church where uh, a couple had lost five children to car accidents in different car accidents. And I just go, oh my gosh, how do you even get in a car and drive to church after that? how How do you get past that? They were one of the most joyful couples I've ever met in my life. And I don't know how that happens. It's part of the mystery of how God works in the lives of people. It's part of the mystery and the grandeur of the grace of God in the people's lives. And so maybe I'm suggesting to the sisters and brothers that we could change our approach to the way that we do this. The way that we suffer. That Job gives us some helpful things. How do we not do it? Here's the way we often do it. Number one, first of all, avoid it at all costs. This is a place, I've shown this to you before. Uh, some of you have been at New Vintage a while. This is the International Rain Room. This is a cool place, it's in London. We were just in London, if I remember it, we would've gone here. Okay, so this is a room where you go in and uh, it rains everywhere except where you're standing. So you can go through and it's pouring rain all around you. But wherever you walk, it stops raining. So you could go on. I mean, think about how kind of creepy that is and cool at the same time, right? That's kind of like what we want the earth to be like a little bit, don't we? It's not that we wish anybody else any harm, but, you know, you find yourself going, hey, at least I'm dry. Thank you, God. (laughs) I really feel bad that they're wet, but... So we watch it and what jades our faith is thinking that for some reason we should be exempt. If, if there was a God, why'd it rain on me? I've rarely heard somebody get to an actual crisis of faith because of something that happens to somebody else. Now that can be subsequent, but usually it's coupled with why they're suffering and what's been taken from them. So it was that and what happened to their sister, okay? But we try to avoid it at all costs. I mean, wouldn't it be great if life were like that? That, I mean, I think we all know we can't live in utopia, that the very nature of life and creation means it's, gonna, it's gotta rain for things to grow. We just don't wanna get wet when it happens. We'd prefer that life be like a rain room And so, much of our efforts at living are directed in that direction. We try to do what we can to avoid having to do that, to suffer, to be in pain. We'll give our kids a little extra help on their homework when they didn't get it done on time. We won't have difficult conversations we know that we should have because we don't want to endure the pain of hurting anybody else's feelings or being put in an awkward position. What if I went to them and they still rejected me What if I went and had the conversation with them And it hurt their feelings and then that would make me feel bad I don't need that If given a choice between the cheaper Painful option and the more Expensive option with no pain Which one do you think people Would choose if they had The money Now we don't want to see Anybody suffer but we don't volunteer For it ourselves very often either And the result of this is the difficulty enduring small amounts of suffering faithfully because we simply aren't used to it. We also struggle to know how to help others, and we often hurt them because we don't want to see them go through pain, not just for their own sake, but because of the pain that their pain causes us. I don't want to see them in pain, so I'm going to go help help them get better as fast as I can so that I don't have to feel bad anymore that they're in pain. Isn't that one of the first thoughts that we have when we hear something terrible happening, say, Newtown, Connecticut, or Vegas, or Thousand Oaks? Something more every day, but also heavy dose of rain. Friend loses a job, thinks they may have cancer. We hear she left her husband and kids for somebody else. A child is born with difficulties, whatever. We feel deep, deep sympathy, and we resolve, hey, I wanna be there for them, and then when the dust settles, we hug our kids a little bit tighter, little more thankful for what God's given us we feel bad for others but we're also thankful in the kind of that deep place that for the time being we're in the rain room didn't happen to me we were spared I mean how else are we supposed to feel I mean I guess that's normal you know look at Job and say sorry Job we're so sorry for you you just can't imagine while also be glad being glad that it wasn't us So we avoid pain like his, ourselves, like to get out of Job quickly, frankly, because the whole conversation we're having this morning makes me feel really awkward. And it's painful to look at a person who might be suffering and say, I don't know why. And no, it may not get better for a while, maybe even a long while. And it may be that your life is going to be different from this day forward, but that doesn't mean it has to be worse. It doesn't mean that there's no point. The problem is, when I turn to Jesus and I look at what he says about suffering, all I hear him say is, I see his own. I see the inevitability of my own. He looks at me and he says, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Now, if I can't avoid pain, the next thing I'll do is I'll try to rationalize it. This is kind of the new one in our society that we live in. This is Job's friends and the kind of the experiment of Western society in general. We'll talk a lot about Job's friends next week, but uh, when, when what happens when you kind of buy into a, a myth, and in our case in society, it's a secular myth, that there's always a knowable, if not social or scientific reason for whatever it is that occurs, that causes suffering. Now that's not to say that there never is a reason like that, especially in cases where sin or injustice is the cause. But even when we observe the why, again, can we really explain why the why happened? See, only Christianity really offers an answer that doesn't just affirm suffering's reality, the fact that it exists, but it shows its redemptive purpose and offers a God-honoring path toward alleviating the injustices of the world. I mean, think about it this way. In the secular view, the material world that we live in is really about all there is. So the meaning of life is to have the freedom to choose the life that makes you the most happy. However, in that view, suffering has no real meaning. It can't. Because it's a complete interruption of your life story. It can't be a meaningful part of the story. That approach to life, suffering needs to be avoided at almost any cost and minimized to the greatest degree possible. And that means when facing unavoidable or irreducible suffering, secular people smuggle in resources from religion and things that are needed, like medication almost, to add as a vitamin supplement to what's going on. And I don't mean to poke fun in any way, shape, or form. It's just to simply point out the shortcomings of that perspective. And anybody that's ever called me because I'm the only pastor they know, they're not religious, they lose a loved one, I, I view that as a holy, beautiful thing. But, it does point out that in moments like that, there is a disruption of narrative in their mind. This is going on, I don't really know how to compute this in my mind. It doesn't fit. My suffering doesn't fit what I know and what I believe. Um, Cultural institutions that we're a part of are supposed to be neutral and value-free. Not telling people what to live for, only ensuring that the freedom of every person to live as he or she finds most satisfying and fulfilling is preserved. But if the meaning of life is individual freedom and happiness, then suffering is of no real use. So, I don't know. It's amazing. You read commentaries on Job. It's all through there. I read all sorts of commentaries, not just Christian ones, but uh, secular ones as well. There are a lot of people that view the Bible as a wonderful work of literature, et cetera, et cetera, And so it's amazing reading commentaries on Job, how many people find the need to find natural causes for what happens in Job. Job had a skin problem. Climate change caused the wind that took the life of, of his children. Now, this is 5,000 years ago, right? I mean, I don't know how much. I guess they had cows back then. But, uh, you know, his wife... Suffered from unsupportive wife disorder. <laughs> True story in an actual commentary. <laughs> I'm gonna move on from that one. There are a lot of jokes ready at the ready there. Okay, uh, and no, I'm. A, this wasn't in a commentary, but you know, there are some people who would try to go, "Hey, the Federal Reserve is to blame." If he were alive today for his loss of financial fortune. We just had more regulations, or we just had more of this, or we just had more of that, or or if only this had happened, or if only that hadn't happened. See, this right here is a clear illustration of why we need more of this. There's always an equation, right? There's always an equation. But have we ever noticed that every solution we come up with seems to make the problem worse, not better? I mean, can we really say, yeah, we're making real progress? I mean, people are much more emotionally healthy than ever. I mean, what win can we put on the board? We're more just than ever? We're more righteous than ever. Or when do we get to the point where we recognize that not everything works according to just social engineering? You can't always explain things in just equations. Now, What that means is, then, when it comes down to issues of of justice in the world and things like that, the motivation is different if you're a Christian. You approach it because God wants this for his world. So we're going to pursue it, and I'm going to pursue it, but I'm not doing it because I think by doing this, all suffering is going to come to an end. I know better than that. God's already told me, in this world you will have trouble. No servant is greater than their master. And if it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to us. But that changes the, the goals and the aim with which we go about life in this world and the way that we handle it when tragedy strikes. C.S. Lewis once wrote, the wise men of old, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. Meaning, this is the way things are. How do we, how do we work on our soul in such a way that we can cope with this? How do we conform the soul to reality, and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For modernity, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. How do we change the world to basically accommodate the rottenness in here, or what's going on in here? And the solution is often a technique. There is no technique or social engineering project that will end suffering. The final end of suffering will be when we see the face of the greatest sufferer of them all, Who suffered to end our suffering? And until then, the Bible gives us one simple call with regards to suffering, and it's this. Endure. Endure? What does that mean? Suck it up? Rub some dirt on it? What's that mean? What does it mean to endure? Well, let me give you a a few tips that the scriptures give us how to prepare yourself for the season of the ash heap. The Bible would suggest to us that spiritual growth in Christ is our best weapon against despair during times of suffering. Because closeness to our Heavenly Father grows our pain tolerance. And the reason is, first of all, Jesus, the one who endured, lives on us. And the deeper and more powerfully, the spirit of the one who raised Christ from the dead Jesus, the suffering servant of God is alive in us, the more leathery our soul will be in all the right ways. Trust in our heavenly father also keeps us from despair. And it reminds us that the fact that my suffering is actually in his hands is great news because there's nobody else's hands that I would want my suffering in. And it calls me then, it will keep me from isolating myself like I was talking about earlier. Proximity to God. And making a decision, okay, I'm going to stay as close to God as I can. So even if I make the mistake of trying to isolate and heading the opposite way, I'm still fairly close. Whereas if you're already out here, it's really hard when you're suffering out here to try to find your way back over here. And so the closer we are to God, God's like this kind of cosmic, almost uh, gravitational pull in times of pain when you're close to him. Like Job. Job runs toward God because he's already very close to God. But when you're out here, sometimes it's very, very hard to try to create a spiritual life at that point in time when you haven't had one before. So let me encourage you, if that's where you are, don't isolate. Move toward God, not away from him. As the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Second, live with integrity. Amen. This is going to keep you from wondering if God is punishing you. That is disillusioning and will play crazy mind games on you when you're suffering. Right? Is this because, is this because of what happened on that business trip? Is that because of whatever? Is this because of the first thirty years of my life before I came to Christ and now I'm reaping what I've sown? Is it because of this? Is it because of that? Or because you happen to be living in sin at the moment, you automatically interpret it as punishment. It will play crazy games on your mind if it does it, Plus, what does integrity do? keeps you close to the Father. So if you're not living with integrity, then you're already kind of over here. The mind games creep in. Satan goes, yeah, you know what? If God really loved you, you know that stuff they say in church about God being able to forgive you and forgive your sins, all that. Well, you can see that didn't happen. You can tell by what just went down in your life, right? Whisper, 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 hiss, 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 hiss. Living with integrity is what keeps you close to the Father. And so that is one of the best weapons you can have. First Peter 2, 20 to 21 says, for what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it if you, uh, that you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christ suffered, he called you to this too, It's no big deal if you sin and you suffer the consequences of it. But if you do good and you suffer for that, that's blessed in the sight of God. Uh, Third, cultivate the ability to endure suffering. How do you do that? Well, you expose yourself to it. There's really no, it's like working a muscle. Uh, I hiked Mount Whitney several years ago. And I read a book on Mount Whitney, highest peak in the lower 48 states. And so the original guys who discovered the top of Mount Whitney got up there, and back in those days, it was pretty hard to get up there. It's hard to get up there now with all the tech we've got and supplies we've got and all that, all the knowledge we've got. They go up there they get to the top and they find a woman's high heel on the top. Like the original pioneers, first guys that, as far as they knew were the first guys at the top of Mount Whitney. They found a woman's high heel shoe And I go, well, (laughs) see, they thought that they were the first ones, and they thought that they had it hard. You want to try hiking Whitney in heels? I mean, I don't know if it fell off the wagon or if it fell off her foot when she was hiking, but they did. They found a woman's high heel up there. Some of it is just knowing and being around people who know what it's like to, to suffer and make it through. And actually, avail yourself of opportunities to make moves toward God and enter into the suffering of other people. As a pastor, being in, in, in uh, proximity to the suffering of others, says, help me suffer better, I think, unless you're crunching your bag during one of my daughter's productions. Then I get antsy about it. But here's the other. To learn how to lament with others. I'll tell you what's comforting to people. And then, we're, then the sermon is yours. Is learning how to, when, a, when another person is sad The Holy Spirit will give you the wisdom To know when it's time To urge them toward taking some healthy steps To get better And when it's time to just lay down next to them and go Father, uh, our hearts are broken I'm just asking you to be here We're just sad um, and checking in on people and being willing to not say hey if I if I go in and I get involved in this situation It's going to make me Sad so I'm going to try to avoid that One of the reasons that we ought to try to be as healthy as we can is so we can be healthy for others And if I can't for instance endure any pain of my own I, I can't endure yours either. It's gonna be hard So The way that you develop that in some ways, it's like exercising a muscle, it's like skin, you know, it's like shaking a construction worker's hand emotionally. They got rough hands, big strong hands. Find the person, find those people that you know inside the body that from the standpoint of grief and lament, they got those kind of hands and find find who they are. I'm out of time. We'll pick up next week with Job's friends for this morning. We're going to be serving the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. I'd ask those who are going to be passing the trays to to go ahead and take your spots. Um, As we do, I want to invite those of you who might be brokenhearted this morning to go ahead and feel sad in the presence of God, but move it toward the table of God. Lay it out before God. If you know somebody who might be brokenhearted, pray for them this morning as we gather around the table. If you know somebody who's recently lost a loved one, maybe their heart is, is broken over something. They've got a cloud hanging over their head right now that they just can't seem to get out of. Pray for them. And may it be said among us this morning as the uh, trays are passed, that the words of Jesus, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted, would become true the beginnings of it would become true this morning in our midst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We worship you, we adore you. And uh, I pray for every broken heart in this room. I pray for every person who's got the strength and the health to be able to help others. We lift our prayers up now in the name of the wounded healer, Jesus Christ. And we ask, Father, that those who who are broken would, would come to you, they would move towards you now as we take the Lord's Supper, bread and cup, body and blood of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.